This is the time in our service where we open up our Bibles to hear from God about our lives before Him. And so you can open your Bibles to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. We're studying this book together, and it's in chapter 5 is where we are today. And the book of Joshua is one of those rare places in the Bible where um, military strategy plays a role. And so... Um, today, I, in preparation for this, I spent some time looking at what were some of the worst military strategies that have ever been launched, and I thought I'd share a few of those with you. There's a fellow named um, Cambyses II of Persia who was fighting the Egyptians in the Battle of Pelusium in 525 B.C., and he figured that since the Egyptians held cats as sacred creatures, if they would put cats on their shields and paint, paint cats on their shields and then actually bring cats to the front lines, hundreds of cats to the front lines. He was, his hope was that the enemy would not attack because of the presence of the cats. This is probably not the best military strategy ever devised. Um, in World War II, another strategy, curious strategy, was Russia gave World War I-era biplanes, the old two-wingers, um, to a group, brigade of women bombers. They gave them inferior technology primarily because they're women and the fact that they were schoolgirls with four hours of training. And the idea was that they would fly against the infamous German Luftwaffe. And so I'd be betting on the Germans uh, probably at that point in time. Last one, um, there was a fellow named Timur, in 1398, was battling a sultan with 120 war elephants, and as his people began to flee, he ordered them to dismount, load their camels with as much hay as possible, and set the camels on fire, and send them towards the elephant, the idea being that it would scare the elephants away. Um, and let, needless to say, setting your camel on fire is not a recommended uh, military strategy. Um, let me add one more. Prescribing minor surgery for all of your soldiers in a way that totally incapacitates them for about a week or so just as you enter the battleground, okay. which is exactly what happens in Joshua chapter 5 today. This is the strategy that God has his people unveil. Look in your Bibles at Joshua chapter 5 verse 1 where we read that as soon as all the kings of the Amorites... Uh, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So this introduction to our chapter tightly connects it to what's gone before, right? As God miraculously brought his people across the Jordan River, and entered the land that God had promised them. Chapter 3 of the book of Joshua summarizes it this way. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. 
and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So the kings who were in the land of Canaan heard about Israel's crossing, and they were terrified, it says. Um, We saw last week that the river offered them a kind of protection uh, along the border of their lands from their enemies, and they associated with their gods. Again, historian Ray Vanderland says, they worshipped, the Canaanites worshipped fertility gods, particularly Baal, whom they believed to be the god of water, Rain, storm, wind, thunder, and lightning. And in their minds, the flooded river demonstrated Baal's protection. So when Yahweh, Israel's God, miraculously dammed up the river Jordan while it was at flood stage, um, these kings knew that their goose was cooked, right? They had no hope. Their gods could no longer prevail and protect them from the God of Israel. And so in the first verse there it says, Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And if you've been studying along with us uh, in the book of Joshua, that language should sound familiar to you. It's the the words of Rahab, the harlot, back in chapter 2, as she took in the spies and told them what had happened, what what word was out uh, about what God had done. And she used this exact language, and it just demonstrates again how truthful she was and how accurate her assessment was. But at this point, we finally find Israel camped in the promised land. They've crossed over the River Jordan. They're in the land that God had had promised them. And the objective now is a military one. The objective is conquest, to put it in a word. Drive the inhabitants of the land out before them so they can possess the land. This is what Moses charged them to do before he died. Back in Deuteronomy 9, Moses says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire is the Lord your God. And he'll destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So at this point... If you're a military leader in Israel and you've just entered effectively the battlefield, the question on your mind has to be, so what's the plan? What's the strategy to drive the people out? We gonna paint cats on our shields? Gonna set camels on fire? What are we gonna do? And it's even better than that. Look what happens in the next verse. Verse 2. Um, The Lord says to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, um, at this point, what you are about to experience is probably one of the top ten sermons you've ever heard on circumcision. Okay? This is probably right up there. So take notes. Um, 
And for starters, that unpronounceable place, Gibeath Haraloth, means foreskin hill, uh, which is more than appropriate here. I'm not making that up. You Hebrew guys, you know that this is true. Um, So the plan, the great strategy, is to circumcise all our soldiers and put them out of action for, say, like a week or more? As you enter the battlefield? And I'm sure all the soldiers are thinking, how about we paint some cats on our shield? I like, I like cats. I like the cat idea. Great symbol. Cat. Take, do the cat thing. Let's not. But from a military standpoint, at, this is a really bad idea. This is not a good strategy. Incapacitate your soldiers just as you enter the battlefield. Now, why would the Lord command this strategy and he starts to answer it in the next verse verse 4 says uh, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all the males of the people who came out of Egypt all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt an entire generation died Though all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So you remember, when Israel was rescued from slavery out of Egypt, um, because of their unbelief, um, what could have been about a two-week journey, they were disciplined by the Lord and they wandered around for 40 years. And during that time... None of their sons were circumcised. Why is that so important? And if you look back, circumcision was given to Abraham, uh, the father of Israel. It was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that God made with him. Back in Genesis 17, you read this. God says to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it was a sign of the covenant. And let's be honest, pretty weird sign. Okay? I mean, I get the wedding ring as a sign of the covenant. I get the rainbow as a sign of his covenant with Noah. This is, you could say, a painfully odd sign um, of a covenant. Um, why, why this sign? And Scripture doesn't say with precision exactly why this particular sign, uh, why God chose this sign. And clearly, this is God's idea. This was not Abraham's idea. He's 100 years old at this point in time. So, in Genesis, back in 17, chapter 17, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So, major promise in the covenant God made with Abraham is that he would bear a son, and through that son there would be a multitude of offspring, a multitude of nations would rise up. So it's interesting what God is doing here. 
on top of promising children. Well, first let me show you another verse that kind of complicates things. Um, Abraham and Sarah were too old to have kids. Uh, Look at Genesis 17 again, verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? He's not exaggerating. He's 100 years old. Shall Sarah, his wife, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Okay. So what God is doing here, on top of promising a child, who would then give birth to many, many other children, um, to a man and a woman far too old, God now wants him to go cutting on the, um, let's just say, an integral part of the process, right? That's what circumcision involves. And so um, the idea is that this is, this is like the Jordan River at flood stage, okay? It's making the point that only God can do this, okay? Only God. One uh, professor, Professor Peter Leithart, says that um, to drive home the point, this mark of the flesh's impotence was imposed on clearly already impotent eight-day-old boys were circumcised. And we could add to that a hundred-year-old man is circumcised. So God is setting the stage here to say that he is doing this. It's a sign that this is God's work, that this is God's provision. Um, God is giving the fulfillment of the covenant's promises. And for, um, for the people of Israel, this is a very permanent, lifelong reminder. God is bringing this blessing of children and descendants to us. And it was intended to be an outer sign of their inner heart, a heart of trust. So Deuteronomy talks about that this way. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Okay. Um, it is a non-negotiable mark. It was to reflect their trust in God. And it was decidedly not optional. Listen again to that 17th chapter of Genesis. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So back in our story, chapter 5, verse 6, the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So if you're familiar with this wilderness journey, uh, this Exodus journey where they're for 40 years wandering around the desert, it's not exactly a time of exemplary faith for Israel. In fact, it's a time of grumbling and testing and rebellion and unbelief. And it seems that their failure to circumcise their sons who were born to them during that period is just another evidence of that unbelief. And 
It was a marker of their spiritual status with God. As that verse in Genesis put it, they had broken covenant with God. Now, if you read it closely, there's a little bit of a dilemma in verse 6 there where God swears on the one hand that they will not enter the, the land. And then on, it says they will not enter the land that he swore to their fathers that they would enter. So how does that play out? And verse 7 says it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. So their children, the ones who are now being circumcised, would receive the benefit of the covenant promises. And, and God had not just promised descendants to Abraham, he'd also promised him a land, this land. Hence we, the expression, we call it the promised land. And so you get a sense here that God is longing to find a people he can pour out his blessing on, a people who will trust him and obey him so he can lavish these blessings on them. And that's what he does on the children who were born in the desert. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. So the amazing thing here is they did it. All of them did it. All the menfolk, all the soldiers decided they would have immobilizing elective surgery with a flint knife right when they hit the battlefield. This is what they decide. Um, all the generals, all the soldiers, they lay down their weapons and they undergo this significant um, surgery in effect. So rather than trust their military strategy and build fortresses or launch campaigns, the first thing they do is to trust God and make themselves totally vulnerable and totally dependent upon God, which is not an easy thing for men folk to do, okay? especially those of a military persuasion. This is about as sensible a strategy as taking cats into battle or setting your camels on fire. It makes no sense, but they do it. They take the risk and they obey God. And by this act, they are confessing that they believe that the conquest will not happen by their might, but by virtue of God's as they obey him, as they trust and obey. Does that sound familiar? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right, than to trust and obey. So brings up that question, do you trust God? Yeah. Do you trust God to be good to you, to take care of you? So a story is told about a San Diego bank who hired a private investigator to track down a bank robber and retrieve some stolen funds. And the search leads to Mexico. When he gets to Mexico, he realizes he needs a Spanish interpreter, so he goes to the phone book, he looks up interpreters, he hires the first interpreter on the list, and after many days, he finally captures the bandit, and through the interpreter, he asks him, where did you hide the money? And in Spanish, the thief replies, what money? I have no idea what you're talking about. And with that, the investigator drew his pistol, pointed it at the suspect, and said to the interpreter, tell him that if he doesn't tell me where the money is, I will shoot him where he stands. 
And so upon receiving the message, the bank robber says to the interpreter, Senor, I have hidden the money in a coffee can under the fourth floorboard in the second floor men's room of the Palacio Hotel on Villa del Rio in La Paz. The investigator turns to the interpreter and says, what did he say? Senor, said the interpreter as he thought for a moment, he says he is prepared to die like a man. <laughs> so do you believe that God will be truthful to you? Do you believe that he will keep his promises? Do you believe that he's trustworthy to you personally as regards things that he has asked you to do that involve some measure of risk? They did because they believed that being right with God was the most important thing they could do. That's what circumcision really represented at one level. Being right with God. Being in covenant relationship with God. And whatever the risk, they decided it was worth it to be rightly related to God. Verse 9. The Lord then says to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And in this act of obedience, this act of trust, in, in circumcising all their men, God was removing the ridicule that had followed them through the desert. And it's, it's part of a kind of a piece of what God is doing here. The crossing of the Jordan uh, in obedience with God's instructions. The circumcising of their men with, uh, in keeping with God's instructions. So that um, Professor David Howard says Egypt's reproach would have been occasioned by the Egyptians observing that Israel was wandering aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years. So the Egyptians are seeing them just wandering around out there and they would have ridiculed them. And so now by their obedience, God puts that reproach behind them. As he parted the Jordan, I guarantee you the mocking of the onlookers stopped. And now, as part and parcel of that great rescue by God and the trust and obedience of his people, as they obey him in circumcision, the reproach of unbelief and disobedience is taken away from them as well. So, what do we make of all this? What do you, what do you make of a passage that is so heartily commending circumcision to God's people. And uh, I would say probably not the application you may be thinking of. Okay? Because the New Testament has a different take on this act of circumcision. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, um, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. And so the New Testament does not commend or command circumcision. It does use circumcision as an imagery that's kind of like circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament. It uses it to point, interestingly, to Jesus and his work on the cross and then his work in our hearts. Colossians 2, Paul writes again, In Jesus also 
you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, clearly, there's no expectation um, that we would circumcise our sons based on the teaching of the New Testament. That, for us, is a matter of social tradition and culture and or medical-related reasons. It's not based on, on the teaching of the New Testament. But we would learn from this their willingness to be circumcised as they enter the battlefield that in their minds, being right with God mattered more than anything else, even if it required great risk. Okay. It matters more than safety. It matters more than strategies. It, in this sense, it's teaching a lesson like the crossing of the Jordan. You know, when they crossed the Jordan, they didn't build a bridge. They didn't build a dam. They chose to walk out where the water was and let God part it. They trusted and obeyed God at their own peril. And by having their, their warriors and soldiers circumcised when they entered the land, they're trusting God at their own peril. Their obedience to God made them vulnerable. This was not a safe choice. They chose to trust God and obey Him at great risk. And so chapters 3, 4, and 5 are all teaching this idea of trust and obey. And clearly, in both crossing the Jordan and in the rite of circumcision, there are risks that come with trusting God because if God is not going to be faithful to his promises, his people are in trouble. And so um, I counsel lots of people. It's part of what I get to do as, as your pastor. I help people through thorny places in their world and try to find what God has for them. This is a sticking point. Because when people realize that you cannot trust in you and your plans and God and his ways at the same time, it's a very, very difficult choice. Because you cannot play it safe in your mind and follow the ways of Jesus. Because Jesus says that if you're in a difficult marriage, you persist and you pursue in love. Even an undeserving spouse. Even a spouse who would be like an enemy to you. You would love your enemies. And Jesus would ask that you would forgive those who wrong you. Jesus would ask that you would speak that you would speak of him to your coworkers and your classmates. Jesus would ask that you would live integrity in your work, even when the people in your office aren't, even when your boss doesn't. And all of this involves some measure of risk, doesn't it? Jesus is asking you to trust him, not your strategies. To trust that nothing matters more than being in a right relationship with him. Not being safe, not being in the boss's, having the boss's favor, not being popular at school, not having a big buffer in your bank account. Nothing matters more. If it costs you your obedience to God, you've paid too much for it. Nothing matters more than being in a right relationship with God, right? Does it make sense? You on board with that? Everybody agree? All right, let me, uh, let me give you a, a test case. How many of you would say, that typically, 
it's pretty well near the middle of the will of God for you on most days to open up your Bible and read it and seek God and spend some time praying for the people that are in your world. Okay? If you think that's pretty near the will of God for you most days, just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you think that's probably the will of God. Okay. We've got a majority. Um, so how's that working? If that's the will of God, best we can figure it out. And nothing matters more than being in a right relationship with God. How's that working? Um, this is a good place to start. I know some of you are thinking, I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm starting my own business. I gotta, when, I, when I get up, I'm going. And some of you are thinking, when I get up, i got a herd, an entire herd of children to get to school. Um, I don't have time for this. Take a risk. Set your strategies aside. And obey God. And open up His Word. And spend some time in prayer. Because nothing matters more than being right with God and trusting Him. Pastor John Piper says that life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth, and we could say the crossing of the Jordan, is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So God is saying, trust me. Trust me and not your strategies, not your plans, not your resources, your 401k, not your beauty or your brains or your brawn, not your talent or your experience or your daily planner. Trust me. Take a risk and trust me. That was, that's the decision that happened to a fictitious fellow named uh, Tony Maloney. Tony was walking along a cliff. It was a bit blowy that night, and Tony was walking a bit too close to the cliff's edge, and suddenly a gust pushed him over the edge of the cliff. But as he fell, he was able to grab onto a root protruding from the cliff. He finds himself hanging there 20 feet from the top, 100 feet from the bottom. Tony was in a mess. His mind starts to race. He looks heavenward and he cries out and he says, Is anybody up there? He said, I, I really need your help now. I've led a good life. I've tried to be decent. If there's anybody up there, please save me. Clouds darken. Begin to move through the sky at tremendous speed. Lightning flashes. Thunder crashes. And a booming voice says, I am here and I will save you. I will put my hand underneath you and you will drop into the palm of my hand and you will be saved. And Tony's clinging to the branch quietly and thoughtfully and then he asks, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> See, it's a risky business trusting God. If God really is not a good, good father who is looking out for you and cares for you, and this is very, very risky business. Will you take a risk with whatever God is asking of you and trust him and obey him? Do it for your kids' sake so that they can see what it's like to trust God. 
Gary Haugen is the president and CEO of International Justice Mission, and he says, after we have poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, and after we have provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, and after we've worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, why have you given all this to me? And the honest answer from me, he says, is, so you'll be safe. And my kid looks up at me and says, really, that's it? You want me to be safe? Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens? And he says, and I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. He says, Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for larger glory. So do you believe that being rightly related with God matters more than anything? Well, in verse 10, the people of Israel, while they were camped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day in the evening of the plains of Jericho. And this is another interesting strategic move, right? They're not doing military stuff again. They're doing worship. They're doing remembrance. And this raises the question of why celebrate now? When military strategies make more sense, why remember now? When they were given the command to remember the Passover back in Egypt, this is what we read in Exodus chapter 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month that every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So on the tenth day they were to select the lamb. And down in verse 5 it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at, at twilight. It's interesting. Um, they were to remember this annually. They were to remember God's great rescue in the Passover annually. But as best we can tell, this celebration is only the third time in 40 years that they've remembered, that they've celebrated the Passover. And so here God is setting them up to obey. It's interesting. Did you notice the date references? That it was on the 10th day of that first month they were to select the lamb. And on the 14th day they were to offer it to the Lord. And in our story, on the 10th day of that first month they crossed the Jordan. And in verse 10, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. And God has arranged their crossing of the Jordan so it would correspond perfectly with their opportunity to obey him and remember his great rescue from Egypt. You know, they took the blood of that lamb and they wiped it on their doorpost and, and um, their firstborn were spared when all of Egypt suffered and lost their firstborn. And that led to their rescue from slavery there. And so God is connecting the dots with them back to God's great rescue from the military might of Egypt right on when they're on the verge of having God needing to rescue them again from the military might that's in the land that he promised them. And it's another reminder um, that this is God's doing. 
that they are his people and he will do it for them. He will be their safekeeping. He will secure their victory. And just like Passover in the, or circumcision in the New Testament, echoes of Christ's great work, Passover points forward to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. And he has been sacrificed for us. And so we remember Christ, right, along with these other rescues. But they trust God and they obey. And as they heal up from circumcision, the first thing they do is not plan a military strategy. It's to remember and worship God. Because they believe that remembering and obeying and trusting And being right with God matters more than anything else, more than safety, more than strategy. And so we hear the same message, right? Trust, obey, remember, repeat. Trust, obey, remember, and repeat. And verse 11 says, On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So God had been, throughout this 40 years in the desert, miraculously providing manna for them every day. But now on this day, when they're in the land, the manna stops. It's not that God stopped providing, but now he's providing through the fruit of the land. This land flowing with milk and honey. Now God is providing there, and he's making a statement. They are eating the first fruits of the land. They are now possessing the land that he had promised to them. Trust, obey, remember, and repeat. That's what's going on here, just like in chapters 3 and 4. Now, um, before we wrap up with prayer, there's one thing that I want to draw to your attention All those crazy strategies that I told you at the beginning, the cat and the camel and the biplanes and all, they all worked. Uh, The guys who painted the cats on their shield, the other nation would not attack, Egypt wouldn't attack the sacred cats, and they lost the battle. The cat lovers prevailed, or cat wielders prevailed. Um, The guys who set their camels on fire, it worked. The elephants freaked out at burning camels, turned around, ran the other way, trampled their own army. And the burning camel guys won the battle. Um, the, the biplanes turned out to be so slow that the Luftwaffe's planes stalled when they tried to fly that slow. And they're made out of wood, so they didn't show up on radar. And they turned out to be like this secret weapon that was flown by, by the Russians into the battle. And... The nation that circumcised all their warriors, God was faithful to them. And as we'll see in the book of Joshua, he fought their battles for them. What is God asking you to trust him with and then obey him in? And as we close, worship team is going to come and lead us in a declaration of trust. But during that closing song, If God is pressing you about something, about matters of trust or obedience related to this, I would encourage you as a first step of obedience, you might want to come down to the front here and spend some time praying. You you can come by yourself or with a friend or 
small group member or somebody in your family. We'll also have our pastors and elders here to pray with you. Um, and some of our women's ministry leaders may be able to join us down here. It's a good first step just to say yes to God. Yes, God, I want to trust you. Help me trust you. Help me obey you in that which you are saying to me. So if you'll stand, let's close with this declaration of worship together.